All right. Check, check, check. Hello, hello, hello. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. My name's Pip, one of the pastors here. Very glad to be here with you all. Uh, today, we are going to be looking at Matthew 7. So if you want to pull out your Bibles slash phones, Matthew 7. We're continuing our series in the parables, and this is the parable of the two builders, uh, or, the, or alternately, the house on the rock. So Matthew 7, verse 24 through 29. I'll read it and then we'll pray. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Lord, I just thank you that you are here with us this morning. I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that your word is here specifically for us. There's something you want for each of us today as we look at your word. And I just pray that, man, as I speak, as we kind of ponder these things, just for every single person here, there'd be something that pops out at them that just feels like it's something from you, Lord. It's, it's not my words. It's, it's you, Lord. I just pray that you administer to each of us, even myself now. Lord, convict us where we need to be convicted. Comfort us where we need to be comforted encourage us as we need to be encouraged. You know everybody here and where they're coming from. You know their past, present, future, and you love them, and you want them to know how much you love them. So I just pray that you would be with us now as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to start by talking about the apocalypse, as one does. And specifically, uh, I want to talk about apocalyptic films. So since I was a kid, I really, really love, for reasons that are still somewhat unclear to me, apocalyptic films, so specifically ones from the 70s and 80s. So uh, let's see, like Logan's Run, Andromeda Strain, Planet of the Apes, uh, man, Silent Running, which, man, what a bummer that film is. Uh, yeah, and I think part of it was like the science fiction, just like I like science fiction. I think part of it is that I love films that you could kind of escape into, like a portal into a different world. Part of it was probably, you know, I was a weird kid. <laughs> I'll just get that out of the way. Uh, but part of it was specifically like, man, the 70s, early 80s vibes. Uh, so this is where, so I went to film school. This, this is where I put my little film school hat on. Uh, films from the 70s are known for being very cynical, for having like this pessimism to a lot of them. And I think there's various things that are at play there. Uh, but part of it, I think, is that you're coming out of the 60s and there's a lot of kind of utopian dreams in the 60s. You know, you had this idea that, oh, people are like peace, love, unity, respect, you wear flowers in your hair. People are going to come together and make it work. You have all these communes that are started. You have Woodstock. But then the tail end, you have the Summer of Love. Uh, you have Sgt. Pepper. You have all these things happening. And this sense of a lot of optimism. Disillusionment with the past, yes, but like optimism for what people could build. But then you have the tail end of the 60s going into the 70s. Uh, I wasn't around, so this is what I hear tell. But there is an, a disillusionment of a disenchantment with a lot of these dreams. You have like, so you have Woodstock, this big music festival, right? And then you have Altamont, which was a follow-up music festival, which was supposed to be like Woodstock, but Hell's Angels were hired for security and killed somebody. You have, man, you have Charles Manson. You have all these communes, people getting together for, you know, free love and various things and organic farming. 
uh, and these communes like fell apart. Uh, so you have a lot of uh, jadedness, which comes in. Also, you have all these assassinations. You have Martin Luther King. You have uh, you have Bobby Kennedy. You have cities on fire. So you have this sense like, oh, we could, maybe if we come together, we can make this happen. And then you have, oh, no, we can't make it happen. And you can see it in the films of that era. There's like this bitterness to a lot of those films, especially a lot of the science fiction. Instead of science fiction being like 50s, 60s science fiction, was like, we can make it. We can come together and make these things happen. 70s science fiction is like, oh, no, we can't. No, we can't. Uh, you have, man, if anybody's seen the second Planet of the Apes with Charlton Heston, at the end of it, literally, there's just a bunch of mutants underground. You know, don't, don't worry about it. There's mutants underground. Charlton Heston's there. There's like a fight. There's a giant nuclear bomb. And Charlton Heston, at the, right at the end, like the last few minutes of the film, he's just over it. He's just like, kind of takes a look at the world. He's just like, ah, not worth it. And he detonates the bomb. And then it cuts to a wide shot of the Earth. And a voiceover comes on. It says, an insignificant planet has died. <laughs> Big downer. Big downer. It's kind of hard to top that. But I think uh, my enjoyment of that is not just, not just those kind of elements and not just the grainy film and like the woozy synthesizers, but I think there's something deeper happening because it's not just me. I mean, you kind of think of how many zombie films we've had in the last 20 years. Like our society, like I think all societies to some degree, is obsessed with its own destruction. You think of all the zombie films, you think of just monster films, like since the dawn of cinema, think how many monster films there are where just like a creature is created and then trashes everything and then it gets taken down. Uh, if anybody knows who Roland Emmerich is, he is a filmmaker who's hit, made millions of dollars, many houses I'm sure, off of blowing up various parts of the world. Independence Day, Day After Tomorrow, Moonfall, which I guess is like the moon attacks the earth. I'm a little unclear on that. Don't have to worry about it though. Uh, and you think of Godzilla films. So. You kind of, there's a ton of Godzilla films, like, and all sorts of variations on it, all sorts of variations of giant weird creatures, moths, like, all sorts of stuff destroying Japan. And you kind of think of Japan as a small, powerful, but small island nation, one of whose primary cultural exports to the whole globe is films in which they just show themselves being destroyed. And you kind of zoom out and you think, like, What's going on here? Why do people want to see an assortment of giant monsters like just tearing up cities over and over again? And this isn't just a modern thing. Across all sorts of cultures throughout time, there's an obsession in any given civilization. There's like stories of the end of that civilization. You kind of think, why would people pay for entertainment to see their world destroyed? And I think, you know, you could have various theories on this, but my personal theory, my pet theory, which I'll trot out here, is that uh, human beings innately long for apocalypse. It's built into us. We long to see it, even if we can't fully articulate why, because intuitively we know there's something truthful in it. We know there's something truthful in it. Uh, the Japanese novelist and long-distance runner, Haruki Murakami, he said, everyone deep in their hearts is waiting for the end of the world to come. And I think you look around in our city, there is a desire. I mean, we saw it in the last two years particularly. There's a desire for cleansing, for justice, for judgment, for truth. It's in the books we watch, the movies we read. Reverse that. It's in our politics in a lot of ways. Man, and do you, I think there's also just this feeling underneath, a lot of, underneath for a lot of us, maybe I can't say for everybody, for a lot of us, this feeling of uh, waiting for the other shoe to drop. 
So do you remember the very start of the pandemic, uh, so like March 2020, when the world shut down, there's just this one specific week, I remember, I think it was a Wednesday, when coronavirus, you've kind of been hearing about it, and then one specific Wednesday, like Tom Hanks announced he had COVID, the NBA, there's some announcement, and then President Trump had a press conference. It was all like in the space of an hour, and it was like, oh, this is happening. Like, but I remember thinking it was a good idea, and it was not. I remember thinking it was a good idea, like, oh, I'm gonna go on Reddit and see what people are saying is gonna happen. <laughs> and Reddit's a message board where, uh, yeah, a lot of crazy stuff happens. <laughs> I remember looking at it, and it was, man, it was dark. It was like all these kind of, all these, all these, virus films people had taken, all this kind of sense of foreboding, which I think is underneath, it's like in the ground, it's like in the, the groundwater of civilization, like all this sense of like, oh, it's, the other shoe's gonna drop, things are gonna be tough. It, it was a sense of, oh, it's finally happening. I remember thinking like, am I gonna like look outside on my little cul-de-sac and see like a zombie dude walk down the street and like fall down? And COVID was real and you know, people died, it was serious. But thank the Lord, it was not the apocalyptic scenario that I think a lot of people were expecting. But it's interesting. I think you look at any given time in history, people always have the sense of like, ah, something's going to happen. Like, whether it's, man, the 70s and 80s, people growing up with a sense of like the Cold War, like the nuclear war was imminent. And we actually, we got pretty close to the nuclear war, which is kind of wild if you look into it. Uh, you think of, man, just all sorts of various scenarios of this is how it's going to go down. Peak oil, if you've ever looked into that, peak oil production, there's like a whole, there's conspiracy theories around that. There's so many stories of like, things are going to crash and this is going to be how. But I think it's because underneath it taps into this feeling for a lot of us that the jig is going to be up one day, that we're living on borrowed time, that the way we're living, we, we can only play at this game for so long before the game will be over. We aren't at ease. We look around and we see the world we see that so many things aren't right. Man, the last couple of weeks in the news, a lot of stuff that is not right. That we know just things happen that should not be, that break your heart. And I think deeper than that, we're not at ease within ourselves. So I think in some subterranean way, whether we realize it or not, we realize we also deserve judgment. You know, the Bible says we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I think in our most vulnerable, honest moments, we see, yeah, that darkness that I see out there, it's in me too. And that's going to lead us to the beauty of the gospel, as we'll see later. But first, a little more about apocalypse. So the actual word comes from the Greek word for uncovering. So it's like to take the cover off something. So strictly speaking, an apocalypse, like that word, it means an unveiling of what's really going on, of what the reality is behind the appearance. And that's what this parable is about. Two houses, seemingly similar, but when the storm comes, when there's a shaking, there's an unveiling of what's beneath the surface of what's really happening. So let's look at it a little more. Uh, this comes at the conclusion of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, uh, which traditionally the site, it like, took place on a site overlooking the Sea of Galilee. So think of like, people hearing this and like, looking at the sea, looking at the sand of the seashore as they're hearing about a house built on the sand. And Jesus is saying that Everyone who hears his words, there's a really key phrase to think about. Everyone who hears his words and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Talks about rain falling, floods coming, winds blowing and beating against the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who who hears them but does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the same thing happens. The rain falls, the floods come, the winds blow and beat, and it fell and great was the fall of it. And in a sense, we have right there 
like in a little capsule image, a picture of all humanity, Jesus is saying there's only two options. There's only two options for a foundation. You can build your life on his words, or you ultimately experience a collapse. And that's sobering. What defines those foundations is how we respond to his words. I mean, I think it's really interesting that it says uh, after, after this part of, uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, right after this parable, it says the crowds were astonished as it, at Jesus' teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had, his author- had authority and not as their scribes. So Jesus is speaking with authority, and he is saying that his words are actually the defining element of our lives and our ultimate destiny. Only one lasting foundation, his words. Everything else will pass away. Later in Matthew, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And I think it's worth pausing there and thinking, that is not what somebody says, who if they're just merely a good teacher or has some ideas for how to live or is just sharing some thoughts, that's what somebody says who's making some bold claims. That's what somebody says who is actually claiming to be God in control of the entire universe. And he's not telling us this because it's like some sort of power game or he wants us to acknowledge like, hey, you got to say I'm the king. Say it, say it. It's not like that. He doesn't need to prove something. He's saying it because he wants us to have a lasting foundation. He doesn't want us to have a house that falls. So even right now as we're hearing these words, it's because he loves us that we're hearing it. It can feel very sobering, but it's for the purpose of healing. It's for the purpose of peace for us. And the question comes for each of us, including me, is what are you building on? What are you building on? Uh, a few weeks ago when Josh Wilder was here, he uh, gave a shout out and did an impression of Bob Dylan saying, gotta serve somebody. I'm not gonna do the, an impression because the video might get back to Bob Dylan somehow and I, I don't want that. Uh, but he said, gotta serve somebody. And the song came out right after he became a Christian, late 70s, says, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you gotta serve somebody. And he goes through a long list of people in various positions, high and low in society, and he keeps coming back to, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. And the one time that Bob Dylan was on Saturday Night Live, this is what I think of when I think of this song. He was on Saturday Night Live in 1979, his only appearance. And at that point, I think Saturday Night Live was a lot cooler and had more like legitimate countercultural uh, credibility. And Bob Dylan comes on there. And Bob Dylan, man, he's just like, he has that look like a prophet who sees through everything. Just a kind of gnomic look like he's just seeing through the whole world. It's just like, nap. And he, uh, I just love him just coming on to SNL and then just singing this song. It's like everybody's having fun. It's like a good time. Great, amazing sketch comedy show. Great cast, great crew. And Bob Dylan comes in and says, you got to serve somebody. It's either the devil or the Lord. And then he'll feel like he just drops a mic and he's never on SNL again. Love it. <laughs> so uh, what do people build their lives on? You know, you think of what do we build our lives on apart from fa- that foundation of Jesus' word? There's a lot of things. Music, friendships, romance, artistic passions, jobs, kids, family. Those are all good things. But when they become ultimate, they're doomed because they don't last forever. They will pass away. When we take good things and make them ultimate things, that's making something into an idol because it can't sustain our lives. It can't sustain us. It may seem to sustain for a while. You know, like you build your whole life on music. Music is your everything. Music's great and can be a great comfort and incredible blessing and transcendent in many ways. But it's not a foundation for life. It can't save us from death. It won't receive us into eternal life. And those are just like the nice things that people build their lives on because there's a lot of darker things. Power, just like raw power. Uh, sexual pleasure at like at all costs. Uh, man, revenge, like 
people are driven by revenge, greed, all these things. We're driven by that to some degree, like whether we like it or not. That's, that stuff's in us. But oftentimes that can be like people's actual foundations. And none of these things can ultimately save us or sustain us. And none of these things will receive us into eternal life. None of this stuff lasts forever. Man, uh, death, death strips things away, you know? I think a, a Bob, uh, Bruce Springsteen line, uh, he says that, oh, what is it? Now I should have written it down. Uh, oh, in the end, what you don't surrender, the world just strips away. And it's true. All these good things get stripped away. The only foundation that's sure is, is God. And Jesus is God, and he's telling you he's the only foundation that lasts. And you're hearing this right now because he loves you and wants you to know that. He doesn't want you to experience disaster. He wants you to experience love, his love. Uh, Psalm 125 says, Those who trust in Yahweh are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As a mountain surrounds Jerusalem, so Yahweh surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. God promises to be with us, to be like a mountain, to be like a rock, to be a rock for us, no matter what happens. Does that mean life will be easy? Spoiler alert, no. The parable clearly says no. Both ex- houses experienced like this, this tremendous battering. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Hardship will come. Life is hard. Uh, I forget who said it, but a quote said, life is hard if anybody tells you otherwise they're trying to sell you something. And Jesus himself, he promised that persecutions will come. So if, uh, if you think of if you've ever been in a house with a shaky foundation, I think of one specific house just pops to mind. It was in Lentz when I was looking for a house, so deep southeast. And if this is your house, I am so sorry that it is your house. <laughs> you need to move. Because it was this house, it's like, okay, sweet. Like you walk in, and like, see, it's a small, cute little house. You walk into the kitchen, and the, the slope in the floor was noticeable. Like if you dropped a bag of marbles, it would just like instantly rush to the other side. It's like, okay, that's a flag. And I remember going to the, then going downstairs and seeing the foundation, and it was just like this jerry-rigged foundation. You could see these pillars. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, like if there's an earthquake or somebody just sneezes a little too hard, that thing's going to turn into a vortex. That's, a, that's the last thing you're going to see, just going down like, oh, that's not good. So sometimes the foundation, okay, it can be very obvious there's a messed up foundation. But I think a lot of times it's actually, it's not noticeable. A bad foundation, you don't see it until shaking comes, until battering comes. And in this parable, there's similarity. It doesn't say that the two houses are actually, the houses themselves are built different. They're very similar. The only difference that we're given is their foundation. And when they experience hardship is when the foundation's revealed. So there's like a short-term similarity, but there's long-term reality. And you know, oftentimes in the short term, it can seem like it doesn't matter what your foundation is. Like, kind of look around. It seems like people who don't care about God at all or living however they want, you can look around and be like, they seem like they're not just like doing okay. They're doing well and better than I am. And I think everybody has seasons where they kind of look around. They're like, oh, I feel like I'm doing the right thing here, but this hurts. This isn't working out the way I thought it was going to work out. And the Bible is not foreign to that. In fact, Psalm 73 is all about that. The psalmist He's looking around, and he sees that people, the, the wicked, have it easy while life for him, for him has been so hard. And he, he kind of just pours out his heart to God, like, this, this stinks, this feels unfair, this feels like a wild imbalance. It feels like I'm doing the right thing, and my life's just blowing up in my face. While I look around and see people are just doing whatever they want, and they're doing well. But then it says, 
But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. And God does not delight in the wicked being destroyed. God does not delight in people's lives falling apart who have rejected him. Like, that's why he's telling us this. He doesn't want that to happen to anybody. Scripture is very clear. Like, God's desire is for all people to come to know him and experience forgiveness. God doesn't delight in that. And when you hear, like, the phrase wicked in the Bible, you can think, oh, is this, like, an us versus them thing? Like, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. But the truth is we're all, biblically speaking, we're all wicked. We're all messed up. We've all rebelled against God one way or another. We've all sinned. But... In Jesus, you can experience forgiveness. You can be brought into his righteousness. It's about him being the good guy, not about us being the good guys looking down on other people. So it's an invitation. And it's an invitation to find a foundation, foundation that lasts. As I've been just kind of meditating on this parable, preparing to pre- preach on this, something I think initially it can seem so sobering because it ends on such a like intense note. The house fell and great was the fall of it. But actually, what struck out to me more and more is how comforting the parable is, how sweet it is. Jesus is actually reassuring us that a house built on a rock will survive. And man, in tough times, that is a good word. That is something to cling to. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. You know, everybody goes through dark times. Everybody goes through shakings, like times of shaking, and those happen at different times. I think for some of us, maybe we, we can think of specific moments in our lives where we, that we went through where it seemed like the bottom fell out, and we look, through, look back like, wow, thank the Lord I got through that, or like maybe you met Jesus through that. Others, others of us might be in it right now where it kind of feels like you don't know which way is up. You feel like you're a, man, if you've ever gone body surfing, you get thrashed, and you're just kind of underwater, and you don't know which way is up. It's like, ah, and you're waiting to emerge again. And for some of us, maybe it seems like things are great, um, but it comes one way or another. Like, I think for some of us, it comes at the end of our lives. We realize, oh, my life was built on sand. Whoops. But Christian, non-Christian alike, we all experience hardship, you know? And we all need Jesus. But in the dark night, when you do experience that, the question is, do you have a foundation that will see you through? And in Christ, we have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We have somebody who, man, even if you don't feel it, like he's with you and loves you so much. He knows everything about you, knows your past, present, future, and loves you and accepts you totally. He loves you so much. And man, one takeaway, if you're just going through it right now, just know the Lord really does love you. It's not just like uh, mute words on a, you know, dead words on a page. He really does love you. And Jesus himself experienced hardship. Like he experienced more hardship than any of us will have to go through. Like, and voluntarily, he came to the world, voluntarily experienced just the sorrow. It says he's a man, the Bible calls him a man of sorrows. He experienced the hardship of life itself. And he suffered on the cross when he himself did nothing uh, to deserve that. But he went through all of that so that he could give us a lasting foundation. So if you experience hardship, Jesus knows what it's like and he's with you. All right, so heavy topic, I know. There's some, some, uh, some more light coming as we keep going along. Um, but... Unveiling, 
I remember I had a teacher in high school who, I went to a Catholic high school, which makes a little more sense why this teacher said it, because it was intense, but he said, we're all going to experience an apocalypse. May not be the apocalypse, like end of the world kind of apocalypse, but all of us have a personal apocalypse that's coming, because death is there. It's, it's coming. <laughs> no matter how much we push it away, it is coming. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, who, Danish philosopher, 19th century, who honestly, I have tried to read many a time, but he is a real champ to crack. I have like a book of his by my bed and it's just gathering dust. But I read one quote from him that really stuck with me that I really liked. Uh, and I think of it from time to time. It says, do you not know that there comes a midnight hour when everyone has to throw off his mask? Do you believe that life will always let itself be mocked? Do you think you can slip away a little before midnight in order to avoid this? Or are you not terrified by it? Sobering? Uh, and I think that is part of what's underneath, man, those apocalyptic films, underneath that sense of unease a lot of us have. But in Jesus, you don't have to be afraid of that hour. You don't have to be afraid of like a mask being pulled away because you have an unfound, unshakable foundation. And it's not about how strong we are. It's about what you're relying on. And in fact, your foundation, the thing that your house is built on, that's going to affect your house, as it were. That's going to affect you. Have you ever been into a, you know, when you go to a house and it just feels different and you can tell the kind of life that's lived there? So maybe that's walking to a house and there's just like, you know, Cheetos mashed into the floor everywhere, like seven TVs going. Uh, I'm trying to think of, I've never been to that kind of house. But sometimes you walk into a house, it's like, whoa, some intense lifestyles going on here. But sometimes you walk into a house and it's like as soon as you step in, you can exhale. Outside in the world, sometimes it's going to feel like everybody perhaps wants something from you, is trying to get something from you. You have kind of billboards, do this, do that. You know, you have to go pay for gas. It's a, it's a ton of money. All these things, you have to go from this, you have to go from work to home. You have all these responsibilities. And then when you get to a home where it feels like, hey, nobody wants anything from you, you can just get to be yourself and be loved right where you are. A house of warmth and kindness where you can just exhale and be loved. That is a very sweet feeling. I think probably for all of us, we've experienced that in some house or another, even if it's somebody we don't know very well, but you just step in and you can feel the difference. And I think you can feel some sense of the Holy Spirit there. You can feel a sense of hospitality. And whether it's a house or an apartment or just kind of, man, your car, like the house of your life, as it were, who you are, we can be, for people, we can be like an embassy of the kingdom. We can be like a picture of who the king is, a picture of the foundation we're built on, Isaiah talks about being a shelter from the storm. And man, I want to be that for people. I want to be somebody who there's like a sense of relief. There's a sense that you can just be yourself and get pointed to somebody who loves them infinitely with an undying love. Paul talks about being the aroma of Christ. I like the, I like the idea of having your life be like a fragrance people can't quite place, but it reminds them of what home is supposed to be like. Uh, the North African theologian, Augustine, who wrote uh, City of God and Confessions, Confessions is like an unbelievable book. It is an amazing book. He feels like, after, after reading, I felt like, oh, I feel like he's like a buddy. I want to just give him a hug or a high five. I don't know if he'd be, a, he'd be into that. But uh, he wrote this book, City of God, and he talks about two cities kind of throughout history, the city of God and the city of man. The city of God is the one that's our home, and that's the city that lasts. And it's interesting to think about this parable and the idea of the city of God, the city of man, to think of that kind of historically as well as just kind of the spiritual, like, personal aspects of this we've been talking about. So when Jesus is speaking, delivering the Sermon on the Mount, 
you think of who was the king, who was the person who had all the worldly power that people would have been thinking about at the time, and it was Caesar. So Rome, I mean, at that time, Jesus, like Jerusalem, all the, the, the inhabitants thereof, like the inhabited world in general, was dominated by Rome. Rome had all this power amassed. Rome seemed, it, I mean, you've heard the phrase perhaps, eternal Rome. Rome seemed unshakable. You can, can't imagine a world without Rome at that time, I'd imagine. All that worldly power. And Jesus, by all appearances, most certainly did not. He was like an itinerant preacher from an oppressed people group, occupied Jerusalem, occupied Israel. But the early Christians, one of their phrases that was like comes up, it's in the Bible, and it was like kind of an early creed of sorts, is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And you think about that, that would stand in direct contrast to what most people would think is true, is, which is Caesar is Lord. So it's interesting to think of Jesus versus Caesar, okay? Two, two people who said they were kings. How many people in this room right now are allegiant to Caesar? Don't raise your hand. That'd be very strange, but also kind of intriguing. <laughs> I would want to talk with you afterwards. Uh, but right now, 2.8 billion people at least like sort of profess or claim some form of Christianity in the world. And actually it's the year 2022 Anno Domini, which means year of our Lord, which is marked by like the approximate birth of Christ, which is just wild. You think like, okay, Caesar was way up there by, in terms of worldly comparison, uh, worldly power. Jesus is here. He says he is Lord. And then 2,000 years later, like we literally number time by his birth. Jesus is Lord and his foundation stands and all the other foundations, no matter how like inscrutable and impenetrable and uh, eternal they seem, all the other foundations crumble. So, we started with the idea that we long for apocalypse. Talked about apocalyptic films. And the question is, so apocalypse, this kind of unveiling, will it ever come for the world? And the Bible's answer is a resounding yes. And that can sound terrifying, but it's actually good news. It's like really, really good news. So, the book of Revelation at the end of your Bible, uh, I think uh, there may be understandably a reaction of like some fear around that book. One, it's hard to understand for sure. Uh, two, it's intense. It's talking about intense things. It's talking about the end of the world, right? Uh, but actually, the way it ends is not, it doesn't end with this like dour, just kind of downer. Like, it doesn't end like Charlton Heston at the end of that second Planet of the Apes just blowing up the world and like, well, that's over. <laughs> it doesn't end like that. It actually ends with a wedding. And in fact, the Bible, it's wild. It's bookended by weddings. It begins with a wedding in a garden, God presiding over the first marriage between Adam and Eve. And it, and it ends with what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is Christ and the church coming together with a new heavens and a new earth. So Revelation 21. I'll read a little bit from that. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write, these, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That is not a downer ending. It's like the happiest, happy ending possible. And you know, 
I think it's not just apocalyptic films that are like suffused with a kind of longing for something kind of ultimate, for some sort of ultimate revealing, for the unveiling of a new reality. But I think, uh, I mean, there's a broad variety of films in so many ways that are suffused with this, from Star Wars to like romantic comedies. You know, you think of just, you ever see a film with a happy ending, even if it's like a piece of garbage, the film, but has like a happy ending that we're almost in spite of yourself, and you're like, ah, I feel a little swell towards the end. Maybe it's like a romance where like the two lead characters are finally together, or man, Return of the Jedi, okay, like Star Wars Return of the Jedi, that ending with the Ewoks dancing, I have totally cried to that. I feel like I'm watching my little boy and just been like, oh, what's going on? Just like that, and I wiped the mic off. Um, he's like, why are you wearing a mic, Dad? Um, but a victory celebration, evil's conquered, looking forward to, a, to a, a bright new world, you know, stepping into a bright new dawn. There's something, oftentimes, that you kind of feel in your heart, this kind of swelling. Where does that come from? What is that longing for? And just as we're kind of talking about, oh, I think there's a longing for unveiling for like apocalypse, there's also an unveiling for a happy ending, like the happiest of happy endings. And the Bible actually says, we're talking about the ending of marriage or like in the marital ending of Revelation. And you think of just like rom-coms, like ending with a marriage. But the Bible actually explicitly says that marriage is a pointer to something even better, Christ and the church, which is what the Bible ends with. Just the idea of like Jesus' second coming, like the church is talked about as his bride. And Jesus' second coming is Christ coming to be joined with his bride. And we get to live life with him, which is beautiful. So Jesus' second coming, I think... So 70s and 80s, I think, in Christian culture in many ways, there was a lot of emphasis on end times and specifically, like, placing certain dates on it, or you had, like, prophecy charts and stuff. You had, uh, I think a lot of people who grew up in that felt like, oh, that's kind of intense. I don't, I love Jesus, but I don't really want to talk about that or think about that too much because it felt like there was, like, people went overboard. But I think people have, like, pulled away from talking about it as much, but Jesus' second coming is actually something we, we should talk about and think about and be expectant of, like, not in a weird way, but because, like, oh, it's really good news. It's good news for the whole world. It's what we long for. When we see, like, horrific stuff in the news, when we see horrific stuff in our own lives, when we just feel, like, the, the disappointments of li- life, like, we need to know there's something where, like, there's a trajectory we're heading towards. So there's a trajectory the earth is headed towards that has a really, really good ending. Uh, Evan has this song, it's my favorite song of his, called Coming Back, which is about Jesus coming back. Uh, and my little boy and I were listening to it in the car one day, and I remember going to New Seasons, and as we were checking out, I was like holding him, and he just says to the, <laughs> to the, the, the checkout lady, just goes, Jesus coming back. It's just kind of like, <laughs> <laughs> And I explained it was a song that we were listening to, and I think she was a little uh, nonplussed, just going, okay. But he was sharing some good news. <laughs> Uh, you know, if you think of just, like, let's just say, pause for a minute, let's say, like, okay, let's say we, like, Jesus isn't coming back. Let's say, like, okay, you die, you be with Jesus, that's beautiful, but history just kind of keeps going on. History is, like, <laughs> you read history, history's a real bummer. <laughs> All right, like, think of it, if it's just, like, this endless sad cycle of death, empires rise and fall, people rise and fall, like, that's tough. Just think of that ad nauseum, ad, ad, just onwards into infinity. That's not the reality. The reality is we're on a trajectory towards something powerful, towards a happy ending, the world we put right. You know, we talked about the longing for justice in our city. You talked about um, the longing for peace and righteousness. Whether people realize it or not, they're longing for Jesus. 
They're longing for his reign to be, to be made clear. They're longing for a really good king to rule rightly, for there to be peace amongst, amongst all of us. It's what we want deep in our hearts. Uh, and, you know, I think it's not this kind of, all right, this is my take. I think it's not even in, like, stories. It's not even just in the Bible. It is, like, I think it's written in creation itself. It's, like, written into nature. Like, you think of, like, the, se- the cycle of the seasons. You have spring, new life, right? Then you have summer, life flourishes. You have fall, things start to die, like the, the leaves change color. Then you have winter, things appear dead and dormant. There's, like, a layer of snow, or ostensibly there's a layer of snow over everything. And then you have spring again. You have new life rising out of that, rising out of seeming death. And at the end of the Bible, it, like, depicts, like, like a resurrection, the way Jesus was resurrected. You see a resurrection of creation itself, in a sense. You know, Romans 8 says that creation is longing for, for this kind of revelation, um, for the revelation of the sons of God. And revelation ends with, like, not with death, not with just, like, judgment. God puts a stop to all the evil things, and <laughs> that's it. But it ends with, like, the world, in a sense, being resurrected to new life, to eternal life. And I think of Josh, but Josh says many a time, the best is yet to come. And if you're a Christian, the best is yet to come. And if you're not a Christian, you're invited to experience that, that the best is yet to come. It is an open invitation, an invitation in which there's no fear for the future because there's no fear of judgment. Seeing God's face is a good thing, will be a sweet thing, a celebratory thing. Jesus has prepared a home for us. And he actually says uh, in, my, in uh, John, he says, in my Father's house are many room, rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. That is a sweet invitation. It's not about us building our own home. And that's the gospel. It's not about us building our own home. It's about a home that's been built for us and we're invited to put our hope in Jesus to find that foundation. So, what does that mean for us right now? As we close, think of what is your hope in? What foundation are you building your life on? In dark nights and hard times, is there someone with you who's closer than a brother? If you haven't already, it's an invitation to say yes to Jesus, just to put your hope in a foundation that outlasts the world. He's already built the foundation. Uh, Jesus came. Jesus is God coming, living a sinless life, dying to forgive us our sins, and rising to eternal life, and then inviting us into that. And all that looks like is putting your hope in him, saying, I trust you. I give you my life. I want you to be king of my life. Resting on a foundation that's sturdy and is already built. It's just a simple prayer. Just surrender to him, which, man, you could do it right now in your heart. You could do it during the prayer time. You will have a time later where people will be on the sides. You can pray. Just pray with somebody. Talk to somebody in your community about it. And if you know Jesus, rejoice in that. Continue to put roots down. Seek to have a house that reflects a foundation that it's built on. And so we're about to have a time of communion and worship. And in that time, you can reflect. Take some time to reflect. Think about your life. And maybe ask the Lord, like, ask the Holy Spirit to to bring up, are there any kind of rooms in your life, in your theoretical house, that don't reflect the foundation that it's built on? It's an invitation to invite the Lord and see what he would do there. If there's ways you're maybe drifting from that foundation, or you just feel discouraged, and you just need kind of like a shot of hope and a reminder of the good king we serve and the good ending we are headed towards, invite the Lord and get prayer. Like, you can ask the Lord to change you. And also consider like how we were talking about kind of the embassy idea how might the Lord be asking you, inviting you in like a creative way to have your life be an embassy of his kingdom, to be something like a home that people are invited into? 
a warm home, a welcoming home. And now, like in our current moment, between now and what we're talking about in Revelation, new heavens and new earth, we're called to hope and live in light of that beautiful dawn, in light of a coming dawn. Uh, so Kurt Vonnegut, writer, he wrote, I think it was his master's thesis, like in the late 40s, but he became, uh, apparently became obsessed with different, the arcs of different stories, like whether it's Cinderella or like the classic like boy meets girl story, all sorts of variations. Uh, and what I love is how he summarized the New Testament. He summarized it as like human beings receive incremental gifts from a deity, so like receive gifts from God, and then experience a massive, like a monumental fall. But instead of, ending, and instead of the ending, well, just like, oh, people got it, and then completely blew it, he says it ends with, then receives, and he uses phrase, off the charts bliss. And I love thinking about that phrase. It's like, oh, yeah, that's what actually Jesus is about. Like, he's offering us off the charts bliss. Doesn't mean that life is going to be easy now, because it's not. But it means we are headed towards a trajectory that's even better than you might think it might be. Like, everything good you experience in your life, like, the good things in life, community, friends, beauty, all these things, like those are just little foretastes, little foretastes of what it's gonna be like in Jesus' return. They're little, just little smidges of what it's gonna be like. And that is sweet. That is something to look forward to. So if you have your hope in Christ, you have a future more glorious than you can imagine. And we together are a family headed towards that. And we wanna invite as many people into that. It's a joyous thing. So hold fast that foundation. Keep it at the forefront of your minds and remember that. I'm gonna pray right now. Lord, I just thank you that you are kind. And Lord, your words, even when you have a hard word, which there's like a sobering reality to this parable, there's a sobering reality of thinking of the end of things, thinking of collapse. But the reason you bring it up, up is not to hurt us, it's to invite us into a hopeful reality. Lord, it's to invite us to build a foundation that will last. Lord, I just thank you that you are so good, and I just, for every single person here, I just pray even in their hearts right now, you'd be working just a sense of your love for them, that you are drawing them towards yourself. Jesus, thank you that you, you didn't come to earth to browbeat us or to tell us about the things we're doing wrong and just to just end, leave it there. You came to invite us to come to know you, to be part of a beautiful victory celebration, Lord, at the end of all things. Lord, you are kind, and I just pray that people today, perhaps they hear that and they feel like, I don't know if he's kind. I don't know if I can trust him. Lord, speak to that. You are trustworthy. You love them more than they love themselves. You love me more than I love myself, Lord. You are so good. So just pray, even now, people feel a tug, maybe a tug towards just <laughs> giving their lives to you, that they would do so. Lord, they would invite you in, just say, Jesus, I'm, I'm a sinner. I need you. I'm messed up. Thank you for loving me. I put my hope in you. Show me how to live. It's simple, Lord. I thank you for the simplicity of that invitation. And Lord, um, for some of us, for the rest of us who are just listening, and perhaps there's particular things you're putting your finger on right now, Holy Spirit, things in our heart which are not, we aren't building on the right foundation, or we're getting kind of lost in the midst of things, Lord, just bring to our minds a reality of who you are, the reality of your foundation. Guide us in that. You are a kind Father, and I just thank you for your, your love. I thank you for these people. I thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, friends. This is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. 
We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroforhopepdx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.